You are listening to episode 52 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Phil's not here this week, so I have to say the joke. That's the joke. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was going to leave the air dead, and so I guess that's better than dead air. (laughs) <laughs> but not by much. <laughs> that's uh, that's my claim to fame. Not much better than Dead Air, but <laughs> but a little bit. So uh, it is our 52nd episode, which, you know, obviously we're super excited about. We've been doing this for a full year now. Woo! So thanks to you guys for tuning in and listening for all 52 episodes or wherever you jumped on. Uh, we don't have the full cast here. We are missing Phil and Kale. Uh, Kale, who is somewhere in the world, who knows anymore uh, where this man is. Uh, but we do have a very special guest who we are very happy to have join us for our 52nd episode. Uh, we've got co-writer of Magdalena. We've got writer of Warframe, um, Ryan Katie. How's it going, man? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's going well. I'm, I'm honored to be on the, uh, the 52nd one-year anniversary uh, sort of situation here. It's auspicious. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you, man. I feel like I have to pick up a lot of slack because you're missing two guys, though. So, <laughs> so it's, a lot of, it's a lot of pressure, frankly. We're sure you're up to the task. Uh, yeah, to be honest, it's not difficult. And, you know, we could replace them with... I mean, listen, I've got a seven-year-old sister. You know? My cat's in the other room. I... <laughs> I mean, that could be, listen, there are a lot of people who love cats, so if you want to just hand the mic over, um, I think, actually, I think a podcast that was just your cat making noise would get more listeners than we do. That's, that's possible. I mean, my, my cat's pretty cute, so I... I'm an angle, though. It's like a hook, you know? Exactly. <laughs> the cat cast. Oh. Is it, like, a cute cat noises or is it like one of the velociraptor type thing you know i mean when you do 52 episodes you're gonna have to really explore that range (laughs) (laughs) oh man so if you want to uh join the celebration with us uh there are many many places that you can reach us and uh lavish praise on us and tell us how great we are uh one of those ways is uh on iTunes, you can leave us a rating there. We are a five-star rated podcast, and we have been for all 52 episodes. So uh, we're very excited about that. And You can leave us a like and a comment if you'd like, um, or whatever podcast hosting platform you prefer. Uh, we are at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold. So check us out there and send us congratulations, because we are needy. Uh, you can write to us <laughs> at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Uh, we'll share your messages from there on the air if you want to write in with a buy or sell or a random question of the week, all that jazz. And of course, last but not least, YouTube. We are on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can like the video, uh, share it with your friends, which is hugely important to us. Leave us a comment and subscribe. Those subscribes are huge and help us out a lot. Uh, and we've got a ton of interviews up there from New York Comic Con. Uh, still rolling them out, but we've got a bunch of big ones. We've got Gail Simone up there. Uh, we've got Jerry Conway on the way. We've got Yannick Paquette up there. Uh, we've got Ed Brisson. We've got a ton of different interviews up there, so go and check that stuff out. Um, had a blast in New York Comic Con, so we're sharing that with you guys now. Uh, but let's turn the attention over to the guest of honor for today. Uh, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> 
So Ryan, uh, you've you've been in the comics industry for a little a little while now, uh, but your your name is still on the come up. So <laughs> I I want to I want to talk to you first a little bit about how you got in the industry and and also really why did you want to work in comics? Well, um, so to answer the the second question first, um, I mean always um, I was always a huge reader as a kid. Uh, I mean, really from the time I, I could read, uh, and I would always just get like random trade paperbacks. Like, I mean, like for Christmas or, uh, a big thing was, uh, in my family, when you, when you got a good grade on a test or whatever, I would get to go to Barnes and Noble and pick out anything I wanted. And if I picked out a comic, my mom would be really pissed. Uh, not, <laughs> not because she was like, don't read comics, but because she'd be like, that's like going to take an hour and a half, two hours of your time. Like you, that's not, <laughs> but, um, so I just, you know, I, I was always just reading random trade paperbacks whenever I could. And the, uh, I was a little older, but I was basically the target age for a lot of those, uh, early, uh, DC cartoons, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, Batman, the animated series and Superman, the animated series, obviously, um, justice league, uh, especially, I mean, all those, I mean, those hold up, at any age, I think they're pretty universal. I mean, they, they have complete adult appeal, especially justice league unlimited and like Batman beyond and static shock and stuff. Um, I mean, they really hit you and those were really formative uh, for me. And so I grew up loving that mythology. And, um, so I was always reading trade paperbacks and I'd, I'd get floppies, but I honestly was not a regular comic store customer for a long time. And then, uh, because I just, it was, it was intimidating the idea of like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll read these collected editions, but I don't, the idea of like going into a store and picking up just one issue when Spider-Man's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of issues in years, like, why would I just pick up one when I grab these collections? And then, uh, when new 52 started, actually, I was like, finally it, like some friends were like, DC's renumbering, we can get it on the ground floor. And, uh, (laughs) We were like, all right, we're going to the shop, you know, and uh, we just all got like full pull lists and, and it, it, was, it was very fun. And I know people have mixed opinions on the new 52, but it, it I, I give it a great deal of credit for my career. I mean, before then, I had uh, uh, for a long time, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I'd never I'd been doing it. But it was always like, well, this won't be my career at least not years down the line i was trying to work in academia and i was like well i'll just i'll get a i'll get a professor gig or or i'll be a a, psychology was my major in college and i was like well i'll just do that and then i was kind of like doing all this writing and i realized uh i was was, when new 52 came out especially i was like oh shit this is like this is this guy's job. Like he gets to write these scripts and like, like this is what you do. You know, they, they, this is a, a job you can have. And so I, I stopped writing short stories and novels immediately and was just like, bought a bunch of guides to read scripts and uh, did a bunch of anthologies. And at the same time to cycle back to the first question, how I got involved in comics is around that time. I was like, how do you get a foot in the door? And in a, in a colossal misunderstanding of the industry, I was like, well, I guess if you work as a while as an editor, then you'll get to be a writer, uh, which <laughs> advice to aspiring creators out there. That is not how this industry works. Do not do that. Uh, it is tempting, but uh, it, it does not. It's not. I mean, I, I have a weird career path right now, which is why that worked for me. But I would not advise it like the editor to creator path is not a smart one or a good one. But I just sort of uh, frantically 
tried to get an internship anywhere. Uh, and it was like months of sending resumes and driving around Los Angeles and like showing up on companies' doorsteps and making an ass out of myself at Boom. Uh, uh, and just like, here's my resume. I printed it on over thick cardstock with like a weird logo because that's what they tell you is, uh, is like the thing to do. And, you know, nobody <laughs> wants that. Nobody wants like your weird resume. They just want a normal thing to look at so they can tell you no. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, eventually, um, Top Cow uh, picked me up and I was an intern there for a summer and uh, it, it aligned that they could take me on and start paying me. And I was just an assistant for two years. Uh, and then for one year, I was like a sort of a full time editor. But that whole time I was I was working on writing. That's what I wanted to do. And then uh, sort of uh, like a year and a half ago, I, I told Hawkins, I was like, look, I uh, I've got this move coming up to New York for, for a relationship and uh, I'm probably going to move there. And I, I, I don't want to be an editor. That's not what I've been wanting to do. What I'm trying to do is write. And he had been giving me some, some writing gigs. He'd been really good about it. Um, and so when I kind of told him that, he was very helpful in like letting me sort of transition out of that role. And, uh, you know, he, he heard my pitch for Magdalena and a couple other things. And we sort of started rocking and rolling on that. And now, now I'm on the come up, as you say, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, um, and and you do bring up Magdalena. Um, so I I had no experience with the book prior to uh, reading your series, um, and I really liked it. Actually, I really, really? Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, man. Like I really enjoyed. Um, so it's it's sort of two things because the character patience right she comes from before you so that stuff that was established prior to you and i thought that that stuff was really cool but then you and teeny right you guys try to introduce a bunch of different concepts and things that make it feel palatable but the world still feels lived in because you're pulling from stuff that came before so i wanted to ask you what was it like working with teeny and with christian on kind of creating this creating these new characters and this new world to fit into what already existed for patients and, and the Magdalena universe. Sure. I mean, um, Tini is, I, I call her my comics, big sister. Um, <laughs> we, we have that kind of relationship. Uh, she, uh, the first year that I was in charge of top cows talent hunt, I think I'd been working at top cow, maybe a year. Uh, she was one of the winners. And so we got very close. Uh, and so when I had, after a couple creator-owned things Matt liked but didn't quite pan out, uh, he was like, well, why don't you pitch on a universe book? And I, uh, I had this kernel of an idea, but I knew that just knowing her aesthetic and how well we work together, it would be much better if we could kind of create it together. So we sort of went in with this idea that we were kind of like, well, what if we did like the Batman Beyond thing? Uh, and that was sort of uh, a lot of our jumping off point. And so... Early on, I mean, working with Teeny is amazing. Uh, we just, we we would talk a lot and then, you know, one of us write up an outline and then, uh, you know, we'd start scripting pages based on that outline, like a shared Google Doc. Um, but, you know, by the end, script-wise, we were just like, it was just one Google Doc and we were just like bouncing off of each other's panels and pages and going over uh, very, like, fluidly. Uh, and Christian is like, he's the horror master. Like, I would, I... I Frankly, I he, you could put him on on any book adjacent to the horror genre, and it would just it would pop. It'd be gorgeous. Uh, and very early on, uh, when I approached him with it, he was like, "I don't know, I don't really do like the superhero stuff because especially the '90s stuff with the and early 2000s stuff, 
and even Ron Mars's 2010 run, like Patience is, it's still like a supernatural book, but it's it's much more of a Tomb Raider type feel. And uh, I love those runs. And Patience is a fantastic character, but it was it was it's different from from the horror thing we were trying to do. And so Christian was very tentative at first, but when he when he read what we were doing, he's like, I, I got really. He, he told me he's like, at first I really didn't want it, and he's like, and then I read what you and Tini put together. He's like, I got really into it. He drew up all these sketches, and it's just for months before we'd even really written a full first issue for months of just planning. It was just like waking up to demon sketches from Christian. He's, just, <laughs> he's like, this guy, he's got like a, he's got like a deer head. And it was like, yes, yes. More of this every day. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, so how did this horror is horror something that speaks to you? Is that, is that a part of your DNA? Absolutely. Um, I feel like I'm 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 talking about myself too much, but uh, this is an interview. <laughs> what do I do with my hands? <laughs> when uh, I, I've always been really into horror, when I was like seven, six or seven, uh, I remember watching Jaws at my grandparents' house, and uh, I really liked it. And they were like, "Well, what did you like about it?" And I'm like, "Well, I loved how scary it was. I loved that so much." And they were like, "Well." if you want to watch more scary movies and at this point um, I was spending like every other weekend at my grandparents uh, and they were like, well, if you want to watch more scary movies, you can and we'll watch them. We'll show them to you, but you just have to, it was more like be discreet. They're like, don't tell your teachers. And uh, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you could tell your mom, but if she, if you do tell your mom and she says not to do it, then we can't do it anymore. And I was like, okay, I won't tell anybody. And then we rented the omen. Uh, and I was like hooked from then on out. Like every other weekend was like going to my grandparents and watching a whole bunch of blockbuster horror movies and uh, like junk food and stuff. Your grandparents sound awesome. My grandparents are the coolest people in the world. Uniquely blessed in that regard. (laughs) One of the things that I I really kind of like about this book is that it gives me Buffy vibes. (laughs) I'm I'm a a, a comparison. I appreciate, appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, like I'm a huge fan of Buffy. Buffy was my first introduction kind of into horror i mean if you've you watched the show at all yeah yeah absolutely yeah, i've watched uh i don't know if i quite finished the last season but i got i got all of the way almost up to the end awesome uh that was very much my first introduction into horror elements and tropes and things like that and uh this definitely kind of reminded me of that was there any intention on your part to make this something that was uh palatable more for new readers who might not for like me who aren't familiar with this character with patience but might have a knowledge of you know different kinds of horror stories like having the the kind of character whose life is very normal that acts as the you know the bridge and those kind of things was that important to you to inject into the story oh absolutely and i mean even early on teeny and i did kick around the buffy comparison a little bit we took out some things actually there were elements early on in 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 the, the uh pitching process that we took out because we didn't want it to be too similar to Buffy but wow. that was that was always a uh like a, a guidepost for us there how well Buffy huh. did that like young high school thing um but uh, the new readers element was deeply important to us and we really wanted to walk that tightrope between how can we keep these extant like old guard top cow fans happy like how can we tell a Magdalena story that that pleases them but also make this approachable to to the vast majority of people because you know ultimately it's still kind of a deep cut you know she's not witchblade of the darkness she's you know the one level below that so mm. and uh I, i'm 
I, it seems like it worked if, if what you're saying is true. So hopefully people <laughs> feel good about it. Uh, that was very, very important to us. So thank you. Absolutely. So is there a reason that you decided to uh, to make the new main character college staged instead of like a high schooler or something like that? Um, I mean, one of it is because we wanted to as much as we like and we, we brought up spider-man a lot early on too and as much as we love like the the young legacy hero who's like got real life stuff to judge we felt like high school was too one we felt like she'd be a little too young we really wanted to do to channel a lot of this horror stuff we didn't want to take a high school student and just like really run them through the ringer <laughs> uh like the the, the early on it, a lot of our suggestions and premises were even more brutal than what happens in the book. And we're like, <laughs> we're like, we don't really do that to like a 15 year old. And like, 19's okay, right? And I'm like, yeah, I think when Tini and I were like, yeah, when we were 19, we, we would have been, you know. <laughs> I can handle this. Yeah, I can handle it. <laughs> we wanted to have like a little, a little bit more further on the freedom angle and like differentiate from the, the high school legacy hero and just sort of, uh, I guess, dig into that, that, young adult aspect more than the the limited high school thing and also you know you get to avoid the the buffy comparison one step further so. <laughs> well until she's, until they she's barely on. even a teenager <laughs> exactly exactly uh also and this is really lame uh 19 is my absolute favorite number uh and it's like super important in like stephen king's many mythoses yeah. so like it's like the number 19 uh and i would like say that and teeny would be like shut up you dork <laughs> like fair fair talking about like just the the horror stuff like what was the um you mentioned that mandalina was originally more supernatural focus and like you guys were turned it into like a bit more of a horror book like i'm a i'm a huge horror buff so like this stuff was awesome like right down my alley um oh, thank you and uh, so what was sort of the the reaction and like perception once you guys sort of transitioned it into that more horror feel from uh, like from fans you mean yeah um you know i remember early on uh everybody's been really complimentary which was we were definitely worried because very early on i'm not here to come on and like talk shit on like grumpy old comic fans uh, gone these are the people who mentored <laughs> me in the industry and like i think every I think almost all, you know, like criticism is valid wherever you're coming from. But very early on, like during FOC for issue one, this one old guy came on and was just like relentlessly shit talking Christian's art. And he was like, that's not how. And like he took it and we were like trying to be patient. And then he took it to that point where he was like, well, that's not how the Magdalena should look. She's a beautiful woman. And this costume doesn't show what a beautiful woman she, and he just like kept doing that. And we were just like, Ugh. we're like, have we opened like a, like a thing? Like if we open, is this like just going to be our lives? Like if we just awakened this beast of people who want her to be in like, I do love the old design, but it, it's an older design. And we would jokingly call it the Dama Nun Tricks outfit. Uh, uh, I think Teeny gets credit for that one, I think. Uh, so, but that's what we were calling it. Um, I think we even have it. Maybe it didn't make it into the final script, but we definitely had it in one of the early drafts where someone called Patience the Dama Nun Tricks. Uh, and um we were super worried, but you know, overwhelmingly, uh, old fans and new were very receptive. They were like, the art is, they, they, they were like, this is, it's okay. They, they were happy that it was going in a horror direction. They felt like it had like come full circle. We had a lot of people saying that like, uh, things like this isn't the art I would have wanted for those stories back then, but it's exactly the art I want for this story now. 
So I think oh, overwhelmingly okay. old fans and new have been very kind and receptive, but there was that one moment early on where we're like, Oh no, what have we, what have we done to ourselves? Um, but yeah, like at, at the top cow booth, top cow fans come up and guys, you know, and guys and gals who have been like this one woman came up to me and she was, she was like at, at Boston and she, she said that she had like Magdalene was her favorite character and she hadn't known that there was a new series because she had kind of fallen out of reading monthly books and she was so excited to like pick up all four. And she, she came back the next day and she said she read them and she was very happy with them. And, and we ultimately, like, like I said, we really wanted to get that, the new readers there, but, but few things made us happier than when people were like, I remember when this character came out in 1997 and this issue was great. That like, that is what made us feel really good. That's really cool. And it's gotta be gratifying to see, people taking your your vision in and, and being receptive yeah it's 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 very gratifying and deeply relieving because uh, just <laughs> that anxiety just lives uh, forever really <laughs> so the the book actually ends in a really interesting place uh, and I I would like people to go out and read it for themselves so I, I'll not spoil it um, but when are we gonna get more what can you tell us? Well, ultimately, that kind of depends on how the trade paperback does sales-wise, like when we'll get more. Teeny and I uh, have like four or five other volumes we've talked to Matt about, and he's, he's into them, uh, uh, well, most of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, it sort of all depends on how, this, how the trade paperback ends up doing as the months progress, when we can possibly do that, and sort of like uh, when's the right time, like... I guess optics wise to, to bring that thing back. Uh, but we're all pretty much raring to go. I mean, like me, Tini and Dabari would, would jump back on and do it on a heartbeat whenever it makes sense to do it. Well, I, I definitely hope we get more. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did have a couple questions about uh, your work on the Warframe comic as well. Uh, so being a big gamer myself, I'm always like really fascinated to just kind of learn the like, ins and outs of some of these like deals and how they come together. So like, how did you get involved with Warframe? So, okay. The Warframe story is, is Matt Hawkins will tell it better, but basically he had worked with the digital extremes people on the darkness Two, And then like three years ago, they were like, Hey, we do this Warframe game. We want to do a comic for it. And he was like, okay. And then I don't know what happened in those three years. (laughs) Six months ago, uh, or the, uh, yeah, around six months ago, maybe a little less, um, they finalized some sort of deal uh, and they they wanted him to do it because of Think Tank and uh, like some of that stuff. And sure. he was like, well, he was like, you know, I, I uh, just because of scheduling and, and what I had done on Magdalena and stuff, he was like, well, I want to bring Ryan on. And so we'll, we'll, we'll do it together. And so the way it ended up working is that it's like, an idea from Steve Sinclair, who's like the big Warframe guy. He had this like initial early idea of like this one scene uh, and it was really strong. And so Matt and I kind of took that and spun it out into this sort of premise for the whole first five issues. And I'm just sort of like running with that. Uh, But they're very, they're, they're, they're not, there's no, in case Warframe fans are listening and are about to get their hackles up. Like I don't have free reign. I'm not going crazy over the universe. Matt, Matt and I, (laughs) talk with these people like every day so it's uh it's very it's controlled chaos so did you have any experience with the game before you came on to the project uh yeah i had played it uh about a year ago maybe two years ago because it had come up in regards to a top cow project i was editing uh someone had been like one of these designs looks similar to a warframe and i'm like what's that 
And so I like looked it up and downloaded the game and played a little bit. And then when, when Matt mentioned that they got the license, I played a little bit more. And then when it was like, Hey, I want you to write it with me. I was like, okay, well I I better play a whole bunch of it. (laughs) So like how much time have you put into the game? Like, have you, you know, like a couple hours or no, I mean, so, uh, at first way back then I probably put maybe a total of like five to 10 hours into it on like my PS4. Okay. And then that machine broke. Uh, and so, uh, when I, when we got the license, I, I put maybe like 20 hours into it, 20, 30 hours into it on my Xbox, um, you know, got through almost all of the main story and then there was a big update and then uh, I fell behind. So I had to watch a bunch of cutscenes on YouTube. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So yeah, I guess like, I kind of wanted to ask like, what is it like trying to immerse yourself in the lore of a game, especially a game like Warframe where like, there's a story, there's a narrative, but like the main crux of it is like this, you know, gameplay experience. That's like an action game. That's not really like about dialogue per se. So like, yeah. How was it like, like trying to dig that out? Um, well, you know, okay. (laughs) Is gonna all right. Well, you know, whatever. We're all nerds here. Uh, yeah. Destiny. <laughs> Destiny is is my favorite. Well, in theory, Destiny is my favorite game franchise. I love Destiny very much. It has a similar problem to Warframe in that it it not a problem, but a similar storytelling from a writer's perspective as Warframe has that sort of like there's this vast lore, but that not that's not your focus as the player as much, right? Right. Uh, and so during Destiny One's heyday. Uh, I wrote a lot of destiny fan fiction, uh, <laughs> uh, for like me and my friends about our fire team. I, I did it one day cause I was, I was really at that point in my career, I was trying really hard to write every single day, even if I was like not feeling it. And if I wasn't feeling it and I didn't want to work on a big project, I would just like exercise something. And so I started, I did that once one day and I showed it to some friends I was playing with and they really liked it. And they were like, do more, do more, put us in it. Uh, and so I was like, <laughs> I wrote this absurd whole destiny fan fiction for a long time. And so, uh, you know, to do that, you just kind of have to like read between the lore and like read all the stuff people say in interviews and just watch a bunch of cutscenes and like listen to the music and get really into it. So I sort of just like transferred over that mindset into Warframe a little bit. Awesome. So, uh, are there plans for the book beyond like this this story arc that you're working on right now? I see. I saw that there's like four issues planned until January, right? Uh, there's going to be five total. Yeah. So I okay, think five. February. I think February is the last issue. I'm not 100 uh, of that arc. So I think that's sort of up to the licensor if they feel like they want to do more. Um, you know, we've we've kicked around the idea a little bit of of doing multiple arcs, and uh, there's like some positive feedback there but it's sort of uh they've been so focused on that i don't know if, if anyone's still playing they just did rolled out that huge huge uh right uh, open world update so they've been sort of really really focused on that lately so i imagine yeah. we'll be having the volume two question mark talks uh coming up yeah i mean i guess it's like there's there's still a good amount of time before this arc is even you know halfway done so i can totally see them not necessarily wanting to focus on that right now yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, we the second issue isn't even out. I think it comes out uh, three weeks, four weeks, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Um, so I, I, I have one more question for you personally, uh, which is, so I, I saw on uh, your image bio that you describe your old fast food reviews at the OC Weekly as, quote, your greatest creative triumph. <laughs> so... I want to ask, uh, do you think you'll ever be able to, d- to dethrone that? Like, what is what is Ryan Caddy's uh, magnum opus? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think 
a lot of those OC Weekly things are, my writing is still pretty primitive. But I think in terms of like what those are supposed to be as like this weird gonzo, Ryan and his friends go eat something gross from a, from a weird local chain or a fast food restaurant and then write about it. I think it might be unmatched. I wrote one. <laughs> I, I wrote one. Like, I think my past self has beaten who I will ever be in regards to this. I wrote one about Lay's. Uh, the Lay's does that do us a flavor challenge uh, where they like, they have, uh, you know, you, you, people got to pick the flavors. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did a fairly typical one for like 2013. Uh, that was like my usual, like snarky, whatever, but it wasn't exceptional or anything. But then for 2000, the year after that, I wrote like a really fear and loathing Hunter S. Thompson style, (laughs) (laughs) which is like giving myself too much credit to compare those. But like, it was just like deeply depressing and just like, I don't know. I I don't know. Those those things, I just read them and I'm like, man, I'll never be able to touch that. (laughs) I think I'm a I'm a much I think I've really improved as a writer, but in terms of what those accomplish, I'll never. It's just so pure, just so purely <laughs> gross and like fat guy. I, I I don't know if I'll be able to top myself. I have a couple dream projects, and if I get to do them, I'll be very content. But I think you know one day I'll be like seventy, and hopefully, and I'll be flipping through my uh, Booster Gold Earth One hardcover deluxe edition critically acclaimed story that they finally let me write. <laughs> Then I'll like go back to the OC Weekly website and I'll be like, just couldn't, couldn't top it. Couldn't top, couldn't top the time I had them take a picture of me shirtless on a couch with a bunch of Lay's potato chip bags <laughs> all over me. Because that's art. That's pure. Oh my God. No, I appreciate that. It speaks very much to my sensibilities. So. <laughs> <laughs> so confirmed your dream project is a Booster Gold series. <laughs> You heard it here first. It's it's one of uh, legitimately it is one of several is that I have like it wouldn't work in current current continuity, but I have like a like a booster gold Earth One style thing that I desperately want to tell. Uh, and you know they probably won't let me ever, but if they do, I'll, I'll be I'll be very happy. You never know, man. After this appearance, I mean, you never know. That's what I heard. I'm gonna tell them. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna call them all up. I'm gonna call up Dan and I'm be like, Dan, I was on the Comic Pals. <laughs> I want my BG. <laughs> I mean, around the office, we call him BG. You know? I'm just saying right after Christopher Sabella was on the show, he got to write Blue Beetle. So I like, <laughs> I mean, Blue Beetle's okay, but <laughs> of the two, I mean, we're choosing the two boosters, the, the real catch. Well, I mean, Heartthrob by Christopher Sabella also got uh, optioned for a television series. So, you know, we make dreams come true here on the comics pals. That's all we're saying. I would love for some of my dreams to come true. If in the next, whenever this goes live, if like a week from this going live, none of my dreams have come true, you're all getting an angry email. (laughs) False advertising. I I mean, I don't want to say anything, but you said you're moving in a few days, right? So this goes up on Monday. I I mean, you're going to be living your dream of being back home by the time, by next week, you'll be home. That's, that's something. If the trip goes I'll off without really a hitch. good burrito and be like, thanks, comics pals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so you are a part of the uh, DC's writer workshop program, right? Yeah. What's that like? That's like the dopest thing in the universe. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, like, that sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I've been struggling 
since I got in to like talk about how much I love it and without sounding like I'm bragging about it, because I mean, like ultimately it's still, it's, it's a workshop, you know, it's just a class. Um, but like Scott, Scott is, is one of the best writers out there today doing the work. He's incredible. And he's a really good professor. Cause that's like his day job. And I mean, I, we're just such a, it's such a great group of classmates to be with Joey Esposito and Mags and Sonia uh, and Phil Kennedy Johnson and Robert Jeffrey. Uh, I mean, I, I just feel super lucky to be in the room and it's, it's really just like any other college workshop, except again, it's like all comic professionals. And all we do is read comics and talk about comics and, and write comics. So it's the ideal college writing workshop. Yeah. That sounds fucking awesome. How did you get that opportunity? Well, I mean, they, they're, they're open and <clears throat> open applications. Uh, so th- two years ago they had one that was closed. So it was like a test run. Uh, and I don't know if it's public who was in that, but people who are in it have talked about being in it, but it was a bunch of like, professionals who've already had like a lot of image credits, some big two credits, et cetera. And then uh, last year they opened it up to anybody who could apply. Uh, and I think they had uh, like 10 writers and 10 artists maybe. Um, and I'm trying to remember who was in last year's anyway. Uh, and then, uh, and then every year they open it up. And so then this year I applied as well. Uh, and uh, they took six writers and six artists. That's very, very cool, man. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I, uh, I'm still a little in shock, uh, but I feel very <laughs> lucky. <laughs> Are there any, is there any like one story you could tell from your experience so far that's been kind of cool? Uh, well, it's funny. The thing I thought of earlier when we were talking about your cat is that Joey Esposito has this cat uh, and it's only, it's only come in to the, cause we do the workshop over, like it's called zoom. It's like a Skype program. And, uh, it, it's, it, the cat has come into play like twice, but the first time we heard it, no one believed it was a cat. <laughs> the noise was dinosauric. It was just like, a, <laughs> I, I can't do it. I can't human vocal cords. Can't make the noise. They came out of the cat's mouth and we were like in the middle of, of someone was getting workshopped. I don't remember whose script we were like workshopping and it was going well. And we were saying really nice things about it. And then every once in a while we'd be like, yeah, I really liked uh, what you did on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> and like everybody stops. And then after like, after a few minutes, Joey goes, Oh, sorry, that's my cat. And we like collectively, everyone was like, fuck off. That's not your cat. What's going on? Is that like a, is someone doing construction next door? And then he brings it on and it's like a perfectly adorable, normal looking cat. But every once in a while in the background, you'll hear like, and then like the noise and it's like, oh, Joey's Velociraptor's out again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they, they make some inhuman noises, man. Uh, <laughs> my cat definitely sounds like a vampire when she gets pissed off. Like just the like banshee whale hiss and run away. But I guess I guess if I could tell a story that's more like in line with what people be looking for. My, my favorite thing about class is that, uh, you know, every once in a while we'll get to a point in workshop where where we've sort of workshopped each other. And Scott will talk and Scott will always go. He'll be like, well, you know, you could really improve it. This is just a really bad idea. Don't do this. But you could. And then he gives you like the best fucking idea in the universe. And he's always like, this is a really bad idea. I'm just coming up with it out of the top of my head. And it's always so good. Like, <laughs> And it's always like something that it's so good that it seems so obvious. You're like, this fixed the whole script. Oh, my God. You know, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Very helpful. He's 
I've had the chance to meet him uh, twice, and he's the one of the nicest guys in comics that I have met. And I mean, obviously, we could say we could do thirty thousand podcasts about his comics and how great they are, you know. Um, but it's got to be amazing for you as a writer who's on the come up uh, to sit at the tree of somebody who's kind of doing it and doing it really well and on the biggest stage that there is. No, absolutely. I feel very, very lucky just to be in the room. And I basically like spend 10 minutes before every workshop being like, okay, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up, buddy. Don't fuck this up. Every email sent is like, delete, 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 rewrite everything. Like, okay, okay. Stay cool. Stay frosty. Got to impress these guys. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Uh, but, but really, uh, him especially, but everyone is just very like chill and respectful and casual. So it's mostly just like me obsessing and overanalyzing it. <laughs> I'm sure they're all doing the same thing in their own way. I hope so. <laughs> uh, so, Ryan, we always play a game when we have a guest on the show. Uh, and hopefully we can play with you here. Uh, it's uh, it's a fun one. It's called Apples and Origins, and if you're open to playing, uh, Pete will take it away, and we'll, we'll we'll get it started. Okay. Oh, so I agree to the game, not knowing what I'm in for. Yes, yes that's part of the game. <laughs> I can't wait for the bleeding cool article about this. Tomorrow. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Katie, right. uh, any horrible thing, whatever. Yeah, let's do it. No, no, I'm sure sh- I'm sure you'll do fine. So, uh, Apples and Origins is the game we came up with where we put a minute on a stopwatch, basically, and um, we're gonna go around the room like round robin style, and like each of us will name an element of like either a character or like a comic or a team or whatever, and we kind of just like crowd develop it over the minute. And then um, we'll recap all the stuff that we decided on. And then each of us has to come up with a name for the book or the team or the character. And then we'll vote on, uh, you know, who we thought had the best one and they'll take the round. And you're not allowed to vote for yourself. All right. Look at it like the workshop. This is this is the same deal. Yeah. Oh, here comes the pressure. Just like. (laughs) (laughs) Which of us is Scott Snyder? You're all Scott Snyder in my book, boys. Aww. Wow, the highest praise. Thank you. All right, so usually we let the guests pick the first thing before we get started. So just pick anything. Like, no pressure. All right. Uh, let's go with uh, ancient bacteria frozen in uh, Antarctic icebergs. Okay. So we're going to start there. And uh, Marco, so we'll go uh, Ryan, Marco, Sean, Pete. All right. Ready? Three, two, one. So the ancient bacteria escapes and uh, consumes lemons. Um, it 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 also consumes humans. Uh, its weakness is sound. Uh, only New York City prevails. Uh, only major metropolitan areas exist, like New York, uh, Hong Kong, and Tokyo. The rest of the world is too quiet and is just eaten by bacteria. Oh shit! <laughs> um, the only way to defeat it is to take a tequila shot, salt, uh, lemon, and then you take the tequila. New York City rats actually <laughs> are a great defense against the bacteria <laughs> because they carry diseases that would kill the bacteria. <laughs> um, but when the rats eat the bacteria, they become the size of sm- of like medium sized dogs. All right, that's time. <laughs> All right, so to recap, we've got an ancient 
bacteria that was in Antarctica that emerges and destroys every place in the world that's not a major metropolitan area because they were too quiet, because its only weakness is sound, and also taking tequila shots for some reason. All right. And New York City has fared particularly well because of its rat population that are now the size of dogs. <laughs> All right. Now we have to come up with a name. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh... Tequila Sunrise. Oh, oh man. shit, that's really good. <laughs> Going for the gold. And like the cover can have like a sun a sunrise that looks like a lemon over New York. Oh, and man. you can tell you can tell that the area surrounding New York City is just decimated, but the city's kind of fine. <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good. Uh Alright, I got mine. Uh it's I'm gonna go with the big lemon. The big lemon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with for some reason, I thought up of like a character name, uh, Mister uh, Mister Lemon Pack Rat. <laughs> what <laughs> is this? A rat with human intelligence, or is this like a man with lots of lemons who runs with packs of rats? <laughs> <laughs> See, it's the it's open to the imagination. It's uh, it, it can be whatever you want it to be. It could be a sentient lemon. He's very Dickensian in my in my imagination, <laughs> Mister Pack Rat. Mister Lemon Pack Rat is a. Is a it's like an artful Dodger figure. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> You're onto something, Marco. You're onto something. Uh, I uh, this is a tough one. Uh, I don't know what else to say, so I'm gonna go with Rat Dogs Defender <laughs> Defenders of New York City. <laughs> going the like like the shirtless bear fighter route with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dogs Defenders of New York City, and there's like some uh, like smooth saxophone yes. I like it see this is now a multimedia pitch we're ready to go here right this, this. <laughs> get Bruckheimer on the horn can we well can we get Matt Hawkins on the horn I think this has some potential here workshop this <laughs> all right so uh, let's all just say our name one more time and then we'll do the vote um so mine was uh was the big lemon mine was tequila sunrise mine was Mr lemon pack rat and mine is Rat Dogs, Defenders of New York City. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know about you guys. I like I got to give it to Tequila Sunrise and yeah. the very complete cover pitch that we got. I love that. <laughs> yeah, same. I'm, uh, I'm going with Rat Dog. Oh, all right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm also going to go with Tequila Sunrise. Oh, I bet you so. guys always vote for the guests. <laughs> oh, no, actually, actually. You're the first guest to win in like two appearances. Yeah. <laughs> The the last so the last two guests who have come on the show have lost badly. Isabella's uh, so good at titles, really. Oh no, Sabella, Sabella won. won. He was a couple guests ago. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, the last two guests were Dirk Manning and Ryan O'Sullivan, and they both lost. And so they're in the losers bracket. Uh, <laughs> you you're in the winners bracket. I so am a superior Ryan. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very tall man. I would not want to fight him, but right now he's on the other side of the world. So what's he get? What's he gonna do? Is he gonna fly back to New York and fight me? Doubtful. So so uh, we'll have to we'll have to have you guys back on for like a an apples and origins playoffs, like a final. Yeah, I'm, I'm game for that. That would be absolutely. great. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump into the regular show. Uh, you absolutely should stay on with us because we've got a lot to talk about. Sure. Um, first, we're going to dive into some Pals Pulls. Pals Pulls is a segment where we talk about the books that are coming out next week that we are most excited about. So if you're listening to this on a Monday or Tuesday, uh, the books that are coming out that Wednesday, those are the books that we are talking about. Uh, so we're going to kick it off with 
Marco, who wants to shout out Saga 48. Yep. Uh, Saga, uh, I think every time it comes out, that's like my and Pete's like, number one book. It's a really great story. I'm loving the arc and I'm loving where it's going. So, yeah, Saga. Awesome. Same for me. Uh, And then for me, it's Batman the Merciless, number one. I I am loving the uh, Dark Knight's Metal one-shots. They've been phenomenal. Absolutely. There you go. Um, And none of them have disappointed. So this one is probably going to live up to the hype, as all the rest of them have. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Brian, are there any books that you're looking forward to that are coming out that you want to talk about? Or what's on your pull list? Uh, Well, for the most thing I'm most excited about next week, uh, well, sadly, I have to close my pull list at Forbidden Planet next week. It's a very, uh, it's a very bittersweet affair. Uh, but I'm very excited to pick up Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, the collector oh, edition. Oh, dude, it's so good from those sweet, sweet boys, Rosenberg and Tyler Boss. Uh, that book rules, mm-hmm. and uh, the trade just looks gorgeous. I can't wait to to read it all in one chunk. Yeah, I uh, I got the um, New York Comic Con exclusive that they did and uh, I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet but it's gorgeous. I, I love the look of it. I didn't get a chance at that because Matt Rosenberg, never at his table. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have one of those shirts uh, that Ka- that Tim Daniel and Katie Rex made where it like looks like a it looks like the We Can Never Go Home cover but it's got Matt's face and it says, uh, sorry I'm not Matt Rosenberg. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to wear when you go to his table you know, just to be mean. <laughs> That's awesome <laughs> oh that's great uh what what other books are you actively reading right now um i you know i'm, I'm reading all the metal stuff uh i'm i'm i am very very into it uh i'm reading uh i think the thing weirdly and this is going to be like a weird one to say oh i love the realm i'll shout out the realm uh because that's like my shit that's like the riffs tabletop role-playing game made into a dope image book uh jeremy han i love all this stuff so that that book rules um but i think the thing that i have been consistently reading right now for the longest is uh jason aaron's door yeah oh okay i love that run and i've i've been reading it since the beginning i i i, I uh, it has not let me down really once the whole time so yeah i'm also a big big fan and i mean they're in, they're in a really interesting place with that series so i'm i'm excited to see where that's gonna go um speaking of Marvel. Uh, we're going to talk about the Black Panther trailer because there's there's a lot of meat in that one. Um, I will save our impressions for a moment because Ryan has some some thoughts about this trailer. I will say that I'll probably have to take the headphones off for your impression uh, because uh, I have a, a, a rule that I've been trying really hard to adapt. Uh, it's my friend Sebastian's rule where uh, it's okay to watch the teaser trailer but hmm. any trailer after that you try not to watch it if you're in a theater and it comes on that's okay because that's like part of the cinematic experience but like when like the hype train shows up on facebook and twitter and it's like watch the trailer now you like abstain because you you don't one you don't want to go in overhyped and two you want to like try and preserve that cinema experience i guess it's yeah. kind of silly but um I don't know. Like I, I, I've noticed since I've been trying to do it more and more, I've noticed I have been enjoying movies more. Like I enjoyed Blade Runner 2049 immensely. And I only watched that first trailer. I didn't watch the the second one. And uh, I like, so as long as it's working for me, I'm going to keep trying to do it. 
But uh, the Black Panther teaser trailer was one of my favorite trailers like of the past year. So, I mean, I don't think that's silly at all. I I adopt the same philosophy when it comes to like non comic book trailers, just because we have a podcast. So we, you know, we got to talk about the news. Um, But yes, I will. I will take my headphones off. Um, I really, really like this trailer. Uh, Yeah, it's it's awesome. I mean, first of all, they're they're nailing Black Panther and the and Wakanda and the advanced technology. It's it's so cool. This is the aesthetic actually, is unreal. Yeah, like this stuff that they're showing, technology alone cooler than anything we've seen in any other pocket of Marvel. Uh, so that's a that's a huge selling point for me. Um, and then also we got to see a lot more Killmonger in this trailer, and Michael B. Jordan. I'm a big fan of his. This character looks so cool. We got the huge reveal that he actually can wear a version, at least, of the Black Panther costume. Right. Also, like, this is, like, a weird nitpicky thing. Not nitpicky because it's a good thing, but, like, I fucking love his haircut. It's, like, very yeah. comic booky. Like, yep. and I love I love when, when a big screen adaption, like, really nails, like, that kind of, like, cartoon, comic book, anime, like, look that we like to see like in real life and it's perfect. Like he just looks so like, yeah, that's a villain, man. Like <laughs> I'm into it. He's a great fucking actor. Yeah. And like for me, uh, before the show, I mentioned this to Sean. It's like, I, I really wanted to shout out the, like that, the music that they use in this. Like it was an amalgamation of like, um, some, like some blues, some like trap, some jazz. And like towards the end, there was this one, um, I, I've, I don't know if I brought him up in the past, but, um, this one, uh, artist, uh, Gil Scott Heron, who is a, he is, or was a, um, a black poet who was very involved in, um, like a number of, um, political movements in like the sixties and seventies. He talked a lot about Afrofuturism, uh, in his, in his works and his, uh, in his jazz. So it was just like, it was, it was cool like, to see like that sort of nod towards that whole aesthetic that they're trying to capture. Um, yeah. And the trailer was awesome. Yeah, yeah man. I think, um, <clears throat> my main takeaway from it, it was just like, it, it looks so unique compared to the rest of the Marvel camp. And that's the thing we've criticized them for in the past. And I think, you know, with most of the main characters living in New York City, like that's a little inevitable to some degree. But like even you look at Guardians and Thor and they have kind of a similar vibe. And like the fact that like Wakanda feels <clears throat> excuse me. Um the fact that Wakanda feels like unique and it, it reminds me like a little bit of um District Nine, like where there was like that sector of did you guys ever see District Nine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. You know, there was like that the sector where like the alien, you know, like reservation was and there was like the community around it that had this kind of blend of human and like alien culture. And it's like obviously they're not aliens, it's just like futurism. But like it looks like it's got that like dirty kind of like Star Wars vibe to it a little bit. And I'm like very into the aesthetic of like what a condo what condo looks like and then you see like the palace and like the more like upper parts of the city and everything and it looks like just so grandiose and royal and like i I don't know i love it i love the way it fucking looks and like just in terms of the cast like everybody that's that's in the main cast is somebody who is either a phenomenal fucking talent or somebody that like is like a pretty much relative unknown, which is like kind of Marvel's jam. So I feel like this has all the recipes to be another really standout, like solo film, kind of like Dr. Strange was for me. 
you know, where it really like sets itself apart from the rest of what Marvel's done, which is what they need at this point, you know? So Phil has decided to grace us with his presence. Uh, glad you could make it for our 52nd episode, Phil. Nice of you to show up. Yeah, uh, 52 episodes, 52 universes, 52 times you had to hear me on this podcast. You know, we, we had this great momentum with Ryan. We're talking about Black Panther. You just come in late and you just you just kill it. All right. I'm waltzing in late. All right. Well, let's 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 just move on. So uh, starting with, the show with, without <laughs> without spoilers. And Ryan, I think you can you can definitely uh, speak to this. Are you guys looking forward to Black Panther as much as you are anything else that's slated to be coming out from Marvel or DC in the upcoming year? With the exception of Star Wars, The Last Jedi, Black Panther is my most hyped film of like the next year. Wow. Okay. I would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. It's like the one that's the most interesting because it's different, you know, like it's not set in America. It doesn't star a white guy as the lead. It's like there's it's got this like crazy you know, like weird futurist vibe and everything like that. There's just so much there that is wholly unique, you know, um, compared to every other thing from the Marvel camp or from like most of what comes out of blockbusters at Hollywood. So yeah, I'm totally with you on that one, Ryan. For me, uh, I would say I'm more excited about Avengers infinity war because you know, it's fucking Avengers infinity war. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The idea of seeing all those people on the screen is like, I I still don't quite believe that that's going to happen. (laughs) I know it is. I know the filming's been done, but I'm like, they can't. (laughs) (laughs) It it very much gives me like the original Avengers vibe where it's like, this can't really happen. (laughs) You know, even though we've seen Avengers, but still it's crazy. Uh, Marco, Phil, where are you guys at on the spectrum of excitement for Black Panther? Uh, Well, I was wondering, Ryan, what are you most excited about? What what, what do you want to see most in a Black Panther movie? The reason I'm most excited about it is I think Marvel has finally hit this place where they're letting directors be like auteurs. So like, and I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm optimistically seeing this in Ragnarok. I mean, we won't know until like next week uh, or the week after, but like they're sort of, it's, you see it in guardians one and two, you see it, I think pretty clearly in the trailers uh, where they're letting the creative teams have a little more free reign within the context of their films. Like, okay, if you hit this plot goal and this plot goal and this plot goal and this plot goal, go nuts. And I'm most excited for black Panther the thing I most like about these auteurie films is that they're stylized, right? Like mm-hmm. Guardians heavily stylized and Guardians is my favorite. Guardians 1 is my favorite Marvel movie, hands down. Uh, although Winter Soldier might be like a better movie. Uh, but I think Black Panther is going to rival that in just terms of like beautiful aesthetics, really leaning into Afrofuturism in a way that I don't think we've ever seen on the big screen ever. Uh, and that's that's astonishing and exciting, I think. Well, it's got like an all-star cast. Uh, there's a lot of famous, talented people in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Big time. And T'Challa is one of the best parts of uh, Civil War, in my opinion. So I'm really excited to see that character arc. He, he's also just a character I've been waiting to see on the big screen a long time. You know, like it, I, I always felt like he should have been in the original, like, re, you know, group of Avengers. But I totally understand why they felt like they needed to get people more dipped into the Marvel universe before they were like, Oh, also there's this crazy, like futuristic city in the middle of Africa. That's isolationist. And no one has ever like heard of. It's like, Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> was a king angle is really cool, but it is, it, yeah, it, it, it deserves its own movie to get to get there. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned uh, Thor Ragnarok, and that's a movie that's coming out really, really soon, and lots of people have seen it already, actually, and reviews are coming in. Uh, and right now on Rotten Tomatoes, Thor Ragnarok has a 98% fresh rating. Uh, and and mind you, it's still super early, right? The movie comes out on November third, um, so it's you know still got a couple weeks. But uh, forty five fresh reviews from certified critics already. That's that's really good. That's also like not common for a superhero movie, even a good one. This is right. also the dangerous hype I try to avoid. It's unavoidable nowadays. Yeah, you can't you can't escape it. But but like Rich Johnston uh, was like, just saw Thor Ragnarok favorite marvel movie of all time ask me anything about it i was like whoa wow bold claim yeah right i mean that's huge and again like i think you know we definitely sometimes see these movies get overhyped especially like when they first come out because i think people are really high on them but i feel like to see a score that's this high and this unanimous like that's a really good uh, vote of confidence for the quality of the film you know so i definitely think we have every reason to be excited and uh I don't think we'll be disappointed. We did. We do have a couple of comments uh, from critics that I do want to share. Um, USA Today's Brian Truitt says, Even tonal issues can't upend the magic this movie taps into, putting Thor and Hulk together as new best buddies, whether they're throwing down in an arena or having a bromantic heart-to-heart. Uh, while Associated Press's Lindsay Barr says Thor Ragnarok is the most fun of the Thor movies by a long shot, but it is still very much a Thor movie for better or worse. So, second comment, definitely more of a tempered re- reaction to it. So, uh, I, I, I'm I'm very optimistic because even if this movie isn't the best thing Marvel's ever put out, it would it doesn't have to be that great to be better than the Thor movies that we have seen. And the footage that we have seen, even if you're just going by, you know, any one random trailer that you might have caught, it, it, it sells you on a tone that's different from Thor. You know, the Thor movies. It very much reminds me, we talked a little, a little bit about Jason Aaron's Thor run. You get more vibes from that than anything that we've seen from the, the Thor Marvel offerings so far on the big screen. So, for that reason, I'm really pumped. And this movie can't do worse than what we've seen already so you know you can kind of go in just just excited to see a a good thor movie yeah i think my big thing with with thor too is in at least in the context of the mcu is i really like him in the context of team-ups and i feel like he is a lot less interesting by himself because they're so focused on explaining mythology or contextualizing what you're seeing that i don't feel like thor has a lot of room to breathe or grow as a character um it's very much just like he's a god and it's like okay He's struggling with, like, wanting to, you know, with his humanity or whatever, but, like, we don't really explore that very much, and that's a super interesting aspect of Thor, but when you don't really, like, when you just tell me that instead of showing me that, it it's hard to really connect with that character, and I feel like a smaller story that still has him surrounded with characters for him to bounce off of is the perfect place for him to thrive. You know, like I think Hulk is a really good foil for him in terms of like, he's a big brute that he can fight with, but like the, you know, the idea of them having like a buddy cop bromance is something that I think sold a lot of people on this movie from the conceptual stage. 
And then the fact that we're going to have, you know, uh, Tom Hiddleston's Loki back as well. You know, they have great chemistry together. I didn't think that, you know, that was as good in Thor 2, but I definitely am excited to see them get another chance at, at bouncing off one another. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think at the very least, it's going to be a, a step in the right direction for this franchise, which has been... I think just a mess, frankly. You know, I think neither of the the standalone Thor movies really stand up to the rest of the Marvel canon quality-wise. I think it's kind of a disservice to say that, like, Thor is a boring character. Like, there is numerous... I said in the context of the MCU. Oh, well, that's just the MCU in general, I guess. But, you know, um, hopefully this film is good. I mean, I'd be lying if I said the first trailer didn't turn me off at first uh because it like you ryan i really like the guardians films i like both of them a lot they might be my favorite two marvel movies uh and it felt like a synergy marketing tactic that first thor trailer where it was like guardians is really popular thor is maybe our least popular franchise if we make it have more 80s nostalgia perhaps it'll draw a larger like larger audience it's kind of turned off by that but in light of all the positive reviews, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best. Um, I'm certainly more optimistic for it than I am Justice League. That's not saying I much. would hope so. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so keeping it within the MCU, uh, it turns out that uh, it could be the case that Avengers 4 will be the Russo Brothers' final MCU movie. Uh, Josh Brolin, who's going to be playing Thanos, um, was speaking about his new film, uh, Only the Brave, and he talked a little bit about uh, the MCU with Collider and may have spoiled the big news. So I'll read you the quote. I think that they're in a position very openly and raw by where they're like, we would never do this again. This is a one-time deal. To put this many successful actors together is such a pain in the ass, but it's been worth it. We're doing two movies, one back-to-back, and this is it for us. Then we'll go off in another direction. But this is a very, very ambitious project, and I think this is going to pay off in a big way. So, do you guys think that the Russos have paid their dues and should ride off into the sunset? Or do you think that maybe they have more to say and more to offer and you would like to see more from them in the MCU? I mean, like, I love the Russos. I think they're extremely talented directors. Um, you know, I've been a fan of them since they were working on Community. And I, I think that they, they've done great work in the context of the MCU. And I think their movies are consistently probably the strongest, even if they're not necessarily... Um, like, I totally understand, like, people saying Guardians is their favorite, right? But I, I feel like most people agree that their movies are, like, the most well-executed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Because um, they're just talented, you know? And then they did a great job of balancing all those characters in Civil War. And I I am confident that they'll be able to do that again for Infinity War. I feel like this is the place you, you walk out, right? Like, where the fuck do you go from there? You know, you're going to bring all of these fucking crazy, disparate characters together and have all of, like, you know, probably one of the most expensive movies ever produced with the most blockbuster, multi-million dollar actors. It's like, what, are they going to go back and do another Captain America movie after that? You know, it's like, nah, I feel like you say what you had to say here, do the best, biggest fucking thing that you can do, and then walk away. 
You know, we already heard that they're going to be doing Deadly Class, right? So I feel like they're probably ready to go back to television and do something that's a little bit more low-key and that has a little bit more creative freedom. Yeah, I mean, the the answer to your question, I obviously think very highly of what they've produced so far. Uh, but, I mean, I think the, the thing is if they have more stories to tell, then I think they'll find a way to tell them. I think Disney and Marvel, um, they chose them to uh, succeed Joss Whedon for a reason. And if this is the last story they have to tell, then this is the last story they have to tell, and that's fine. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's true. Uh, the only the only thing for me is um, so their movies have been so good that you almost you almost worry that like okay, well, what the hell happens now? Who's gonna who's gonna take the reins? Who's gonna be responsible for making the 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 hardest hitting, best overall films? in the MCU if not these guys because they don't the directors that Marvel works with are great honestly um, but they've told the stories especially with Cap that have been the most personal that have really kind of dug deep into what the characters are the truth of them and pulled it out and I hope that that's something that if the Russos can't provide anymore that Marvel wants to see more from their directors and to be fair to them Guardians 2 really does go more in that direction with those characters so I think we just have to have faith in them you know like I think there was a time where we were, you know, it, it was, I, I can remember feeling the same way about the Russos taking over for Joss Whedon after Avengers, right? Where it was like, oh, he made Avengers work. And it's like, how are they going to take over and do that? But they did. And they did a you know better job, I think, in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, I don't necessarily know that there's going to be someone who comes along and does what they've done better. But I'm confident that, you know, there's there's certainly no, like, lack of talent at Marvel. And they're, they certainly seem good at picking the right people for the job. I think to Ryan's earlier point, the more freedom they give people, the more we'll see standout movies as well. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, <laughs> so we also this week got a new trailer for The Punisher. Uh, now, Ryan, you did you did check this one out? Yeah, uh, I, I when I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't immediately like I gotta watch this uh, for the hype, but for for Netflix shows and TV stuff, I generally uh, I don't. I absolve myself of my rule, I guess. What'd you think about this one? Uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, this trailer was more, I mean, these trailers follow a pattern, right? There's like, and this is why I always avoid the second trailer for movies is like the first trailer is like stylistic hype awesomeness. And the second trailer is like, let's reveal some plot stuff. Um, And I don't think this trailer revealed too much plot stuff, but I think it did. It could have come close at points, you know, of like towing that line of like, showing us more than we wanted to see. Um, I am, I am uh, so excited for this trailer to cause like, not excited. That was sarcasm. Uh, the awful <laughs> stir of coming of like, Whoa, look at SJW Marvel turning the Punisher into a guy who fights the U S government, uh, not mobsters. Uh, it's the uh, uh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm just like I can see it. Like I watched that trailer and I'm like, here it fucking comes. <laughs> I can just I can see it coming. And then I'm like, oh whatever. I don't have to go on whatever message boards people talk like that. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I I know what you mean. But this is this is the Netflix Punisher, and and I don't think that. I mean, look, the story that they're telling is not about. 
how the government is evil. It's about how this guy was maligned and done very wrong by that group of people, you know, not the whole United States government. So yeah. hopefully people can see past that. He already see took on that. organized crime. We've seen him take on or it, it was done. It's not like they were like, nah, he loves criminals. and hates them. <laughs> <laughs> Only men from meat hooks. <laughs> they were successfully punished. <laughs> He blew away the entire Irish mob in the first episode. <laughs> yeah, the, they can't be in this one because he blew them up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. So I mean, if you saw, it's 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 a little more detail. Uh, it does give you more of an idea of the story. But if you saw the first one, it's it's you know it's the same deal. What's huge about this trailer, though, is that we learn when this uh, show is going to come out, and the date is very interesting. Because it launches on November 17th, which is the same day that Justice League drops. Sean. Yes. Since I have you here. Yes. I need to make a proposal. Can we watch The Punisher instead of Justice League? No. Fuck! <laughs> God damn. Justice League, guys, Justice League is like three hours tops. I don't, I don't know if you know, like a weekend is long. You can do <laughs> them both. I think watching the I think watching Justice League is probably like the Groundhog Day experience where it's just gonna drag out forever because that's how it's gonna feel. Well, check it out. No matter what we do, we can't do a show about the Punisher until the week after because none of us have the capacity to sit there and watch every single episode before. Well, that's a quitter's attitude, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Okay, I watched the first season of The Get Down in two days. It can be done. So we're gonna do we're gonna do Justice League, and then the week later we'll do Punisher. But there is no getting out of watching Justice League for Fine. anybody on this show. We're doing it. Okay, it's okay. I actually kind of want to watch it. Exactly. Uh, do you think that dropping Punisher was deliberate on the, sa- on the same day as Justice League? Was that deliberate, or does it not even matter because they're not competing? Well, they bumped it because of the shooting. Right. Yeah, but it was like we didn't know when it was going to come out before the shooting. Like, they bumped the panel, which I was imagining was when they were going to show the first episode and actually give us the date. Yeah. And the fact that it's so close leads me to think that they probably picked this date a while ago, no? I, I'm i fairly sure that they, they didn't actually move the date. They just dropped the panel and sort of shifted their marketing about the show a little bit. Yeah. Um. Maybe they shifted the date, but I feel like it's probably been locked in. Yeah, maybe that's why they've been like so secretive about the date, you know, to not like get that that um those like negative reactions before they like they release like we're so close now. It's just like oh okay now it's gonna happen. Like I have to watch it. But if it, this was dropped like a couple months ago, we would be like, hey, wait a minute. Mm. Yeah. So do you guys think that it's deliberate? Do you think they not they're not even thinking about that? I don't know. It's it's so it's hard to speculate with this kind of thing because like knowing what I do from how this works in the games industry, you know, like I feel like these kinds of dates are usually picked so far in advance and like you know, I know Justice League has moved its date more than once and I I would imagine that the plan for Punisher's rollout probably came after that last push, but I don't know that it was like a deliberate, oh yeah, like let's try and fuck 
Justice League by putting out Punisher because I, I, they're so different, you know? Like, I don't necessarily think that Punisher being out is going to stop anyone from going to see Justice League if they were going to see Justice League on opening night anyway, you know? When, especially to Ryan's point, you could start watching Punisher probably the night before at midnight or when you get home from Justice League. I don't know. I kind of feel like it was deliberate. They could have rolled out Punisher a week later if they really wanted to. They could have rolled out a week earlier for all we know. The, the, the came, it's coming out the same day as Justice League. I, uh, I buy it. This is the kind of shit these two companies do. Well, I imagine they also have to be watchful of avoiding Thanksgiving as well. So I'm sure that that's true. Black Friday shopping. What I want on my television screen while I'm eating my turkey dinner is the Punisher shooting fools. That's that's what I want. What's more American than that? Full stop. Full. full thank you. Full stop. So. In keeping with the Netflix shows, we did get a little teaser for Daredevil Season 3. Not a lot. Uh, It's very short. Uh, It's a 46-second trailer that literally only shows um, the, you know, in memory of Matt Murdock. uh, Because, of course, after Defenders, everybody thinks he's dead. And so it's a very simple uh, 46-second little tease. And it's a... a (laughs) It's a tweet from Daredevil that simply says, I'm fine, hashtag defend. Uh, so, obviously, we know that a Daredevil Season 3 is coming. What's interesting about this is, one, the fact that they're teasing it out now, which leads me to question, when can we expect this show? Uh, because we already know that we're getting Jessica Jones next year and Luke Cage. Um, so, that's two shows next year confirmed, uh, plus Punisher coming out uh, here in about a month. So, does Daredevil come out next year and we get three shows? Or is this a tease for something that's a year plus out? I would say Daredevil's the next up if they're showing us this teaser. You know, I think, like, we know Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and Iron Fist are all getting season twos, but the fact that we've seen very little or nothing about them, you know, is more like shots from the you know, like on the scene and everything like that. Not like, Hey, this is literally an ad for daredevil three. So yeah, I would imagine daredevil three probably comes sometime early next year. I don't think daredevils even started shooting yet. Whereas the other, no. So it definitely can't, it definitely can't be. Iron like, Fist is shooting right now. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, iron fist is actually almost done, I guess. Cause they started that right after defenders. Didn't they? I think they've got another, uh, few months actually i know i know a guy who was uh, was paing yeah I, I i believe i believe that um the order goes jessica jones luke cage iron fist as far as shoot where they're where they're at as far as shooting i believe that's what we're looking at so, so that would put daredevil at last but that'd be four shows coming out next year that's yeah that seems like a lot i mean i guess they could have one like every quarter that wouldn't be so crazy the second piece that's kind of interesting is that in the tweet, he says, hashtag defend. So that's got people questioning whether or not, like, how much of a of a direct response to the Defenders is this? Will we see some team-ups in the show, in Daredevil? Um, we know that Iron Fist is kind of, pl- like, playing Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen right now. Uh, we saw that kind of at t- that tease at the end of the Defenders. He took over that responsibility. So, could we see that team up? Could Daredevil have interactions with Luke Cage? Will this be a reunion? I think it was a I think it was a, a potentially big misstep 
and I get why they didn't do it to not just do Heroes for Hire. Uh, I yeah. think both Luke Cage and Iron Fist were the two weaker of the four shows. Uh, and I think both those characters are strong, but ultimately, and the actors, and the actor, I mean, um, Coulter is amazing. Uh, and they have good teams working on creating those shows. But I think ultimately those two guys each on their own leading their shows isn't working spectacularly. And, uh, like, I just think it was, if, if we're talking about flooding the thing with shows or we're talking about team ups, it seems like now granted, I like none of us are in the room. We don't know the Hollywood machine. We don't know what they're having to navigate, but it seems like a no brainer that they should have just gone straight to heroes for hire. I, I, I definitely think so too. Um, or, or at least go there now, you know, like let them both start on their own and then just have season one of heroes for hire. Well, Iron Fist is actually going to spend quite a bit of time being a part of Luke Cage's uh, season two. So, yeah, so we're going to get Luke and Misty and uh, Iron Fist all on the same show, which, of course, probably means Colleen Wing is not far behind. That's a Heroes for Hire core right there. Um, so I think... <laughs> is, is Luke, are Luke Cage and Iron Fist both just going to be Heroes for Hire <laughs> soft seasons? Yeah, right, exactly. I'd be That's, okay with that. About Yeah, I would love that. What I, what I like about the approach is that they're doing it organically. Because for me, Defenders did not leave those characters at a place where a Heroes for Hire team-up makes a lot of sense. Whereas... If they both appear on each other's shows and they progress those relationships more, then when you get that Heroes for Hire in the Phase 3, quote-unquote, of the uh, Netflix shows, to me, that's a more solid series. And then you can maybe cut away from doing a Luke Cage Season 3 and an Iron Fist Season 3. Yeah. Or, or again, like, I would even just be okay if both of them had Heroes for Hire, like, plots that are more focused around them. You know, like if it's like, oh, like Danny's got a Danny story to deal with, but he calls Luke because Luke's his, you know, like partner. Um, that sounds great because they definitely have, um, you know, the characters have a natural chemistry. They've been put together for decades for a reason. Uh, so Marvel has discussed doing their own convention. Now, I I know it's crazy. Marvel um, Expo. <laughs> so. Uh, Kevin Feige was in, was interviewed by Fandango, and uh, he was asked a question about whether or not this is something that they would ever look into. Now, this actually has happened before. There was a Marvel Con in 1975. Wait, the Fashion um, Files interviewed them? <laughs> no, no. Uh, and so Kevin Feige had this to say about the prospect of a convention. Over the years, there have been discussions about that. I think what we try to do occasionally in San Diego, we're very proud of, and think it's a fun tradition. That being said, I think Star Wars Celebration is pretty amazing. I've been to a few celebrations, and the idea of doing something like that, I think we have enough content and enough fans and enough ideas that we could easily do something like that. I'm just not sure where or when. Now, that's a really interesting prospect, uh, and I want to use it to take us into our main topic but before we do that i want to just briefly talk about this and do you guys think that it makes sense for marvel to spin off and do their own thing as far as conventions are concerned listen if we go to this we have to stop at the northrop grumman panel it'll be so exciting 
Stop. <laughs> oh, you're a monster, Phil. Um, so I actually think those are two different questions, Sean. Because I, I think um, to take it from another example from the world of video games, I, I would say that something like this is more akin to like uh, PSX, what Sony does, where it's like, I think you can have a convention where you speak specifically to your like most activated fan base, the people that are like real Marvel fans, you know, that give a shit about the deep nerdy shit. Um, versus like what you do at Comic-Con, which I think should probably be a little bit more like top level. You know, I think Marvel does have a deep enough catalog and a deep enough like fan base that it makes sense for there to be something that's just for them, you know, but I don't think that means they have to stop going to New York or San Diego or whatever. They make tons of announcements at all these shows. You know, it could be the thing where they save one big announcement for San Diego, one big one for New York Comic Con, and then all those littler ones that get in just kind of thrown out in like middle of the road panels and stuff like that, that get maybe an article on Bleeding Cool or or CBR the next day. That would be the thing that they would discuss at their own event. And then that's another big major press moment for them. So um, there there are potentially problems with this uh, because comic book conventions are super 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 important uh especially for creators who don't necessarily work at marvel or dc comics and we're going to talk about that more in our main topic but um ryan i wanted you to sound off first because you're a writer who's kind of (laughs) you're a writer who's kind of you know we talked about it earlier on the come up and you've been you were at new york comic con this year right yeah it was my first time uh tabling at at a big show like that there you go. So do you feel that without Marvel, without DC, do you feel that that would kind of hurt the amount of people who maybe come to these events, go through Artist Alley and see your work? Do you feel like that would limit the amount of access that you have to people who come to these events for the big two, but then stay and enjoy it for guys like you and others, uh, guys and girls like you who are doing their work? I mean, definitely to to a degree, although I, I feel like a lot of people who go to these shows for the big panels and big announcements and stuff like that, they, they rarely tend to be the type of people who uh, make the full trek down to Artist Alley and, and, and pick up things from, from creators and stuff. I mean, uh, if, if you're in like the panel crew and that's what you're determined to do there, that's a, it's a whole different ball game. Um, I think there, there's, there, there is still a loss there. But I don't, I don't know how dangerous that impact is of, of, of Marvel being like, we're doing a Marvel con. Plus, I still think they'd still have a presence. I mean, even San Diego one or two years ago, they had no real announcements or anything big happening, but they still had their booths and they still had their, their comic giveaways and their creator shows up and stuff. And uh, you know what? It could even be a good thing, man. I mean, it could even be if, if, if they focus their TV and movie announcements on this sort of Marvel expo, if they made, uh, they made their, their convention presence more focused on, on, on the books and creators and and whatnot. Yeah. That could be really great. You know, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Ryan actually has to jump off, but, uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on board with us and hanging out. It was a blast, uh, and I would love it if you'd come on again. I had an absolute awesome time having you on with us. 
Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I mean, you know where to find me. I'm, I'm well, next week it'll be a different time zone, but you know where to find me. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. We, it, was, it was a fun time. Ryan, I felt like we got very close with one another. Well, you know, it's uh, sometimes the, the brightest stars burn out fastest. You know, it's just the night is darkest just before the dawn. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Uh, you guys see Six Feet Under? Yeah. The, uh, don't. Don't, don't. When she's trying to take the picture at the edge, like, don't. This moment's already over. <laughs> All right. So, um, before you jump, where can people find you and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, uh, for comic stuff, I'm most active on Twitter. I mean, like, you can follow me on Facebook, but it's mostly going to be like n- normal person boring shit. Uh, but yeah, I'm on Twitter at RYCADY. Uh, and I'm usually just rambling insanely about stuff I'm working on or, or comic stuff in general. Um, that, and at Ry, RYCADY, at RyCady is usually like my, my tag for every social media thing. Um, but that's where I'll be like announcing anything new or, or just keeping up with people. I don't like have a Tumblr or anything like that. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so thank you again for joining us. And anytime we'll, we'll have you back on. So, so. Absolutely. Well, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, sorry, I had to have to bow out. All right. Uh, bye, guys. Take, Take care, care, man. Thank you. So without uh, Ryan, we're, we'll continue on to our main topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about conventions. Now, conventions hold a special place in the heart of the Comics Pals uh, because a lot of our bonding has taken place during conventions. We don't all live in the same area. And so a lot of the time where we really get to spend hours together is when we do these shows. Uh, and I thought that considering this is the 52nd episode in lieu of, uh, doing something super masturbatory, we could talk a little bit about, uh, (laughs) our experiences at conventions, what we do to what we do there together, our general thoughts about them, why they're important to the comics industry, and you know, in keeping with the conversation that we were just having about Marvel, uh, what it would mean for Marvel and DC to sprout out and do their own things, leaving conventions like New York Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con to be driven by the creators themselves and not necessarily the big films or television shows or whatever. So let's let's just start by kind of talking about our experiences at conventions um, as a unit. So our first one together was Wizard World 2015. 15. Yes. 15, was it? Yeah, right? Yeah, buddy. No, 2016. 2016. We always 16. do this. No, it could have yeah. been 2016. It is. Right? It is 2016. It was 16. Oh, okay. Yeah. It is. It is. Yes, you guys are absolutely right. Uh, so at that convention, we were working at another place and um, we all kind of bonded. I'll step back, and you guys can talk about that. We met. Uh, that's where. That's where we first met uh, Phil's ex-girlfriend. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, um, that started one of our f- first inside jokes we ever had as a crew, actually, which was I we dated saw- a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, we, we saw a, a cosplayer in one of those like blow-up T-Rex outfits that are ridiculously memefied lately. Uh, and Phil danced with her, and uh, we learned later that that was his ex-girlfriend. So She did not dance with me. She literally put her head over my head. To eat you? Yeah. That's how dinosaurs dance, Phil. <laughs> Shut up and dance with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
working that convention was actually a lot of fun. Um, for those of you who don't necessarily know what it is that we do when we're at these shows, uh, if you've checked out our YouTube channel, then you'll see a lot of our interviews that are up from New York Comic Con this past year. A lot of that is what we've done for the last uh, few years, together and separately. Um, yeah, I guess and the last three or four years. Yeah, that year was no different. Uh, we were there covering the convention, did a bunch of interviews, things like that, uh, shaking hands. That was hands. actually where we met Plaid for the first time. Uh, yeah. Um, meeting a lot of fans, different things like that. Um, but Fans of the comic spells. <laughs> Which didn't uh, exist yet. <laughs> fans of us. Fans of, of us as individuals. Uh, and it was, a good, it was a really good time. Uh, that was where I think we all pretty much bonded together and kind of realized that there was some chemistry here. At that convention, we barely slept. And Marco was sleeping in a different room from... Uh, uh, Marco and Kale was sleeping in a different hotel room from Pete, Sean, and I. And our toilet was destroyed, surprisingly <laughs> not by me. And us having to go invade Marco and Kale's room definitely solidified the bond between the five of us. Because... You know the old saying, those who poop together stay together. <laughs> I don't know if that's a saying, but... Uh, it is now. I guess it is. And all that made me want to do was get as far away from you as possible. <laughs> he tries his best, but he can't. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can only speak for myself, but I know... I remember on the drive home from that, it was uh, a fantastic weekend that ended really poorly. Uh, thanks to a, a few things that will we'll say for ourselves, but, um, Pete slept with my ex-girlfriend, the dinosaur and things got, it was bad. awkward. Uh, yeah, but actually, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna run with that bit. I've been with my <laughs> girlfriend for, for six years. That's not cool. <laughs> um, and I remember driving home and listening to, uh, a song that Phil had showed me over that weekend. And I remember like, just thinking about this group, you know, and like obviously some other people as well. But Sean and I had been talking about kind of breaking off and doing our own thing since we like basically the day we met. Um, and I just remember having the feeling of like, you know, these these were the guys I really like to work with. And if we were ever going to go do our own thing, that's this is who I'd want. And um, <laughs> so uh I'll be honest. I remember when, um, when Pete, like Pete and Sean were sort of like talking about it. Um, I, I, I was working, I was working with Pete. He was editing a lot of like the work we were doing. We bonded over like our love for image stuff and like indies, uh, indie comics. And, um, I remember him and, and Sean were sort of discussing like trying to start something. And I was getting serious FOMO. I was like, Oh man, I really hope they like, like they talk to me, he's like I can help them with stuff. Uh, this is unrelated <laughs> to like the, the convention stuff. Sorry, Sean, but uh, um, and then they picked me. Oh, Marco, you were always, always like I didn't ask you about it, but it was literally I was like, if I leave, I'm asking Marco to come with me. That was that was probably where the comics pals were born in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, skipping ahead beyond <laughs> all the like. <laughs> Beyond all the um, sappy stuff, <laughs> our next convention was Wizard World of, of this past year. Um, well, we went to New York Comic Con as fans the year 
the year after. So 20, 2017, uh, or 2016, rather, we went to New York Comic Con as fans. And I hadn't been to New York Comic Con or any convention as a fan in a while, so it was pretty cool to just get to enjoy it and see things from a perspective that I hadn't in quite some time. And, well, Phil wasn't really there as a fan. Phil was working. Um, but for... <laughs> loosely. <laughs> loosely. Uh, Phil was working, I guess. <laughs> I think for me, um, and I probably for Pete as well, there was an itch to start something up and, and get this ball rolling. We had already talked about it. Um, and I think we just really wanted to get back into the swing of things. It was weird yeah. on some level to be there, not interviewing creators and, and doing all that stuff. Yeah, man. And I think I think being there and having creators that we knew be like, what's up? Like, we're going to have an interview or whatever? And we're just kind of like, nah, we're just here. And it was, you know, conventions always inspire me. Uh, I, I really love conventions. I know, like, we're talking about conventions as a whole, right? And uh, this is actually the seventh anniversary of the first time I went to Comic-Con is today, the day we're recording this. And um, I, I love conventions, man. I, I find them to be, like, they're, they're a lot of fun. They can be really exhausting. But getting to be around um, that many people who are making art or who are excited to talk about art is just uh, always a really, really inspiring thing for me. And I remember... Yeah, being there with you and uh, and hanging out with Phil and just, like, being ready for what was next, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then fast forward to uh, Wizard World of this year, 2017, and that was our first year working a convention. That was our first convention as the Comics Pals and sort of working for ourselves and doing this thing uh, together. And... Yeah, it was a blast. Um, you guys can, again, you can check out the stuff that we did for New York or for Wizard World uh, Philly 2017 on our YouTube page. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, but we did a lot of interviews. And again, it was just realizing that there was some cool synergy here um, and that we could work together really well without overseers, I guess. Without, We're you know, working bosses. for ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Everyone stayed in my basement at my house in sunny Philadelphia, where it's always sunny, and we reviewed the Wonder Woman episode there, which is an episode you should go listen to, because that's a good one, because we're all together. Absolutely. That that was a really big moment for us, I think, for sure, in terms of like realizing that like what works about what we do, you know, in the way that we do it. The fact that we do, you know, like we did today with Ryan, like we like to have, we like to interview people. We also like to just really just have a real conversation with them. And, and we like to, to have, have fun. Yeah. We like to have fun, you know, and we like to explore the human side of, uh, of some of these creators as well. And I think we, we definitely got a really good opportunity to do that at wizard world, you know, and, and connect with some, some oh, really talented shit. people. We forgot to ask Ryan if a hot dog is a sandwich. <laughs> that was that was Phil's question of the show. Damn, we really messed up. It's our one year anniversary. We didn't get the you know we didn't get the real gritty facts and details out of him. <laughs> They'll never write about us in bleeding cool now. Damn, our fans really hold our feet to the fire, and we fucked up. So then, 
uh, we covered New York Comic Con, which is super recent, and uh, you know we talked a little bit about our experiences on the New York Comic Con episode that we did, but uh, we didn't go super in depth because we were still living in that moment. Uh, and now that we're out I was of it, tired. Yeah, now Sean that we're and out I, of it, we met Grant Morrison. Yes, we never yes. talked about that on the show. We met Grant Morrison. Right, so we did the show Saturday night. The next day, we ended up meeting Grant Morrison. Not only was that the greatest moment of that convention, it was the greatest moment for me of all conventions, and maybe one of the greatest moments of my life. Actually, definitely one of the greatest moments of my life. Um, obviously, as listeners of this show are made maybe too aware of, Sean and I are very big Grant Morrison fans, and... Um, he was there that weekend promoting the new sci-fi show, Happy, and uh, it just seemed unlikely that there would be an opportunity to meet him, especially because a lot of the more busy personalities at New York Comic Con, like Jim Lee, Dan DiDio, um, Scott Snyder, Jeff Johns, Tom King, were all just, you know busy doing uh, DC Entertainment things. Um, so the odds of media, like odds of being able to really talk to these uh, very talented creators, was you know, not extremely likely, but uh, Grant was there at his heavy metal booth, which is what uh, he's the um, editor in chief of, and he's just being a human. And like our interaction with him was like an incredibly humbling experience. They say, "Don't meet your heroes," because oftentimes your heroes will let you down. But that wasn't Grant Morrison. If anything, he was exactly the person you know he is. That was fantastic. You know, man, it's funny, like, that. I've been very lucky in that regard. I feel like that's been my experience with most of the comics creators that I've met who are heroes. Like, they've been very just down-to-earth people, which is always, like, a really, really uh, refreshing experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we, we sometimes forget that. Like, they're just people, you know? And, and I, I remember I had... Um, I saw Tom King from like afar because you had to get, there was like a ticket to line to go talk to him and stuff. Um, but some dude walked up, uh, to Tom King. He's like, Hey, like, do you mind like signing this book? And, and Tom King was totally like, it's just like static. He's like, yeah, of course. Like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, totally. And he's like, Hey, do you want to talk about this? Like, Hey, like he was just like into it. And like, you know, these are people who are just excited to do what they do. And they have the, they have the, the advantage of having people who want them to continue doing what they want what they do um i think that was like very much my my experience with that was like talking to to jerry uh who is like a fucking legend sorry jerry conway (laughs) uh his his interview hasn't gone up yet but um it should be up by now actually so you can check that out uh and uh yeah i mean i don't know it's like i i've been reading stuff that he wrote or stuff that he inspired or you know whatever like for like for years right for almost 10 years and like getting to meet him and have him be such a down-to-earth person that you know like realizes that there is a a lot of people that really care about what he does but doesn't see himself as like you know uh, a celebrity or anything like that is um you know, it was like to be able to just like have a real human conversation with somebody that you look at as like larger than life is uh is we're really privileged to be able to do that. And I I, I hope I don't ever lose sight of that, you know? Oh, and Sean, you, you forgot to mention the FlameCon convention. Oh yeah. FlameCon, yeah, we did do FlameCon. Um and for me, uh FlameCon was a different experience because it was the first 
convention that I had gone to that wasn't that wasn't a major. Uh, so it, it was cool because there wasn't the typical hustle and bustle that you experience at New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con or one of those uh, bigger ones or, or even the the um, Wizard World conventions. This is much smaller, more intimate than that. So you can really have a dialogue with a creator that you're a fan of. If you're getting something signed, kind of talk to them about you know your favorite book and stuff like that. They'll take the time because they have more time uh, to really kind of have that connection with you. And then especially something like FlameCon, such an opportunity to meet fellow fans. Yeah, that's where we that's where we met um, Isaac. Like we touched base with him there, and then we said hey, hey, uh, hello again at New York Comic Con. Just just like getting to to know these creators um, and getting to meet them. The the interviews um, for that one's up also. By the way, like if you guys want to check that out, that was a great conversation too. And I got Isaac to doodle me. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> like the one was it the one minute doodle or something? Yeah, yeah. He was like, for a dollar, I'll do a one minute doodle of you. It was just this like really low fi drawing of me. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> so, if you are a person who has never been to a convention, uh, that's definitely one of the things that I want to get across with this. Is okay. So yes, we are people who have certain privileges because of what we do and we get to spend time with creators that maybe we wouldn't necessarily get if we didn't do what we do but i'll say this i have never had a negative experience with a creator when i was just going to a convention as a fan these people are people uh they feel honored and privileged that you like what they do and for you to come up to them and want you know to say that that you're that you are a fan of theirs or that you would like something signed by them you got to imagine these are people who would work in comics if there was no money in comics a lot of them did work in comics and make no money you know and so for you to now buy what they write or or draw or edit or whatever uh that's a huge honor and so don't be afraid this is something that i used to have to struggle with and don't anymore but don't be afraid to go up to a creator who you are a fan of and let them know and talk to them and express yourself because they want that. That's why they're there. You know, they're there to sell their books and stuff, but, you know, they're there for the interactions. Uh, somebody like Scott Snyder or Jim Lee does not need to be at Comic Con, but they go because they'd love it. And you guys are the reason why they love it. You know, and if you've never been, reach out, try. It's, it's a fun experience, whether it's New York or San Diego or FlameCon or, um, you know any small con that might be in your area the the creators there are going to be awesome they're going to want to speak to you and it's a unique opportunity to be around people who are like you i never feel more at home than when i'm at a convention uh and you can get that same experience it's worth it um do you guys want to add to that because there's still a little more to talk about on the convention side but i want to move on to a little bit more stuff um, I, yeah, I guess I'd like to share like one last like anecdotal experience for me was just like, I think it was the year that we took off that we were just there as fans, maybe. Um, and, uh, I, I had an experience where I got to meet both, um, Brian K. Vaughn and Robert Kirkman, who are two of my favorite writers. And, um, it, it was definitely, uh, those moments were, were really big for me, I think, for coming to terms with being able to talk to, 
uh, these people, especially the ones who are like of like, you know, bigger status like that, who are like celebrities in some sense or another. Um, because, you know, it was the same way. I went up and said to Brian K. Vaughn, I, I thanked him for his work, right? And he was like, well, thank you for caring about the work, right? And I think that's a sentiment you'll find echoed among a lot of these creators. And, uh, and with Kirkman, when, you know, I said to him, I was like, you know, I think it's, it's great that despite all the things you have going on, that you still make the time to come out here and shake hands with people and, and meet the fans and everything. And, uh, you know, he said something akin to, you know, it's like, he, he said that he would, he tries to never forget that, like, this is, this is where it all comes from, you know, right? Like, it's all from people like you that cared about the work and, and show up to support me. So the least I can do is, you know, is, is say hey and take a picture or whatever you know um so yeah don't don't be afraid go go have that experience i think a lot of people don't go and have the convention experience because you know they it seems like a lot of work or, or they, they're afraid of the crowds or whatever but you know i i've had i don't think i've ever had a really negative convention experience that had anything other to do uh with than with work you know where it's been like i'm there for four days and working my ass off and i'm tired not that anyone's ever been nasty or that I've ever had a bad experience with a creator or anything like that. You know, uh, I think it's, it's well worth the trip at least once. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on a little bit, uh, conventions are important. Pete kind of outlined why, uh, the creators need these conventions in order to plug their books, but writers like Tom King don't need that. Right, they work for a major comics publisher. Their books are going to get attention regardless of what you know what anyone does at a convention. Um, but it's guys like Ryan Katie, who we just had on the show, that do need uh, conventions for for the people who walk right by and say, "Hey, oh, your book looks really interesting. Let me check it out. I want to see more." Uh, or like you know, we had Dirk on the show last week. And, like, he always talks about how a huge part of his business is, you know, meeting people at conventions and making a personal connection with them, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, and he's a large part of why Dirk is successful is because Dirk Manning does so many conventions. He, he doesn't slack on conventions. Uh, and at every single one, he makes a concerted effort to make time with people. Uh, and that's really important. You know, think about it. If, if, if somebody is, is nice to you, you're more inclined to be interested in what they're doing. Uh, and then when the work t- turns out to be good, they've made a fan out of you. Um, and so that's hugely important. Now, the question that I posed to Ryan before he left was, do you think that Marvel or DC not necessarily being there to drive people through the doors, is that a problem? Uh, and of course, his opinion was it could actually be a it could actually be to their benefit because then you've got more people that are showing up strictly for the comics, which is a huge boon for somebody like Ryan. And, and I think that that's uh, very valid. So the question is, are comic book conventions, particularly the majors, so big now that a presence from the big two doesn't matter? Do you not need to have Marvel or DC present at a convention, if Marvel pulled away and just wanted to do the Marvel Expo and no longer went to New York Comic Con, would that negatively impact the creators at these events that are not working for the big two and that are not Robert Kirkman? No, I don't think so. Uh, 
like I feel like they're they're events in and of themselves now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna, yeah that was gonna be my exact point because like cons in general are are the event. Like that's what we had at FlameCon. You know, FlameCon itself is is the event, and Marvel or DC wasn't necessarily there. There were creators who worked at Marvel or DC, but um, the focus was those creators who were um, just at FlameCon. And that was the event. That's where we have things like, um, uh, like we had, what was it? Uh, before they stopped doing it, New York Expo? Fan Expo? Something like that? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't think there was like a huge DC or Marvel, Marvel presence um, at those. So like the the attraction is the con, less so the, the people who come. Like those are a big plus. Um, but I think people who are going to, who are interested in comics and who are going to go to those are going to go to those anyway. The sort of the, the bigger names are for like, like casuals and stuff. And I think specifically in regards to San Diego and New York, like the bigger, like major read pop conventions, like I don't think that they necessarily need the pull of like Marvel or DC is going to have a trailer because like there's so many other things that are there now. You know, like, uh, to Ryan's point earlier, what was it, last year where Marvel didn't really have a presence at San Diego? And it's not like that really impacted San Diego's bottom line. You know, like, the tickets still sell out. The crowds are still there. Um, and I, in regards to New York, you know, like, if, if those things were to fall away, like, you would still have, like, all the animation panels. You still have all the video game presence. You still have... Uh, Image and Boom and like Oni and all these other studios that are still going to show up because they are smaller and there's a fan base that's activated for that shit and there are people that go to Comic Con that don't read comics that are there for anime stuff there are people that are there to play video game demos and and to like meet celebrities and shit and I think that like the specifically New York and San Diego Comic Cons are such a big thing now that I I don't think that they necessarily need Marvel or DC to prop them up. I think they've evolved beyond just being a place that you go to get the big news about those two things. Yeah, uh, I think I think there's probably validity to that. Um, one of the problems, I think, with conventions like New York Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con is that the, the spotlight when you're talking about both comics and film is often on the majors, the big two, and then Image. And I don't think it provides the same sort of platform for smaller creators to show off their stuff that something like E3 does or any other uh, gaming convention. Because the only platform that smaller creators really have at these conventions is the foot traffic in Artist Alley. And, for example, in New York Comic Con, Artist Alley is kind of in a weird place, you know? Uh, not nest, not like... You don't just walk... For those of you who have not been, you don't just walk in and see all your favorite creators just hanging out. You have to, like, find the area that they are in, and it's just this one place that's kind of segregated from everything else. And that's yeah. where... The main floor is, like, mostly vendors where you can buy, like, stuff. That That's where someone like Dirk Manning or Ryan Katie has the opportunity to say to you, hey, I've got this new book, or I've got whatever. This is That's their chance. They don't have the big stage. Uh, and so, one of the things that I would like to see 
for conventions going forward maybe change is that i would love to see some way that smaller creators have an opportunity to pump their books maybe they get opportunities at panels um you know set that time aside i don't know uh some way for them to have more of an opportunity to show off what they do because to me artist alley is a huge part of of new york comic-con uh and san diego and any other convention and that needs more spotlight I think the problem with the comparison that you made is that all video game conventions are just video game conventions. Like even something like PAX, which is like more fan focused, is like it's a gaming convention for gamers, you know, and like Comic Con, at least New York Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con have evolved into these like pop culture events. You know, whereas like Wizard World is still a lot more focused on comics, right? But like Marvel and DC don't really go to those in the same way that they do New York or San Diego. And I think that's part of the problem. I think that the publishers should focus on more conventions and make convention season more of a thing for them. I know that that takes a lot of work and it's easy for me to say that as a, as a fucking podcaster and not somebody who works at one of these companies, but. Um, and maybe that doesn't make sense for their bottom line, but I feel like the people that go to Wizard World are mostly comic fans, you know, there are, or, you know, I guess maybe there's a pretty good contingency of like gamers and cosplayers there as well, but like, it seems more, the smaller you go at conventions, the more focused it is on the comics and the creators. And with Wizard World in San Diego, not Wizard World, with New York and San Diego being what they are. It's it's hard to see how you find the balance, right? Because just because they put on panels for those people doesn't mean that people are going to go. No, it doesn't. But it draws attention. So if Dirk Manning has a panel where he gets to talk about Tales of Mystery and Twisted, then that provides an opportunity in one particular space for platforms, news, news, news platforms to come and cover what he's working on for people who don't know who the hell Dirk is, but uh, maybe they're interested in horror comics or people who are fans of Dirk that want to support his can all congregate in one place and kind of celebrate what he's doing uh, rather than going by his booth at different times without him really having the opportunity to say to people who are going to listen and then disseminate that information. Here's what I'm doing. Yeah, and I mean, I agree with you as a as a fan and as like what I want as a fan at a convention, but I don't know that that speaks to the vast majority of people that go to Comic-Con. And I, I feel like that's kind of like a value judgment that's hard for us to make, right? Of like, yeah, it would be great if Dirk had a panel to do that, but like, would enough people come? Is like, what are they going to have to bump instead of that? And like, there's plenty of stupid, useless panels at Comic-Con that they could bump for meaningful comics discussion, which I think they should, but are there enough people there on any given day for just Dirk Manning to go to his panel? And if not, how do you properly market that to interest the Joe Schmo casual who showed up to see the Punisher panel or, you know, the person who's like deeply invested in the big two, but doesn't read any independent comics. You don't. Uh, what Ryan said earlier is apt in that the people who are there for comic stuff are there for comic stuff. And the people who are inclined to care about what Dirk Manning works on are people who could walk by his, um, his, uh, 
his table set up and say, hey, oh, that looks really cool. Let me check that out. A place, a one-stop shop at a panel for people like that. You know, you can think about it. There's like 250,000 people at the most recent New York Comic Con. Some small segment of those people, even if it's 50, can fit in a panel room and hear about his works. Even if you say, let's take five creators, right? And put them in one panel and have it be a spotlight on them. And you get 100 people in that place. That's 100 people who maybe are big fans of one of them. Maybe have never heard of them. Uh, that's people from publications like ours. That's a lot of different eyes on small-time creators that I think we don't really get. And I would love to see New York Comic Con and these bigger conventions do something for those people. Yeah, I would too. I uh, I just I think it's a little bit. I don't know. I I I see the problem as it exists in the in the context of those two shows. For how they've built them up and what they, who they seem to attract now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would it would be interesting if they did like. This is not going to be helpful for for anybody but us. But you guys remember where that pro room was that we were in? That was like the the room right near Artist Alley. It would be interesting if they put a panel like room in a place like that. That was right next to Artist Alley, and like there was a constant rotating schedule of creators from artist alley giving talks about the stuff that they were doing so it would be an easy like one-stop shop for if you're a real deep comics person and you want to hear about new stuff new creators independent people you know the stuff that you're not going to hear about at the big marvel dc panels um i I think that i think there's something like that i think in the basement that they stuck everybody in mycc there was like a panel room uh, I don't know what they utilized it for, but I remember walking by it several times, and there were different panels happening. Well, that's the thing. That's where that's where most of the panels are is in that downstairs area. But those aren't like relegated to those specific things. Like there was that one near where you're talking about where they had a couple creators come and do like signings, I think, and like small discussions. But even that, it was like Eric Larson. You know, like it was like bigger names and stuff. Like it was um, Scott uh, or not Scott. Um, Todd, Todd McFarland, like it was like bigger names like that, and um, I didn't even know Todd McFarland was there. Shit, yeah, I mean, that was like the only thing he was doing. Like he was just doing these really small things. It was weird, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I think I think you're on to something, but I think there there's definitely a logistical problem there based on who Comic Con now attracts as it, as what it seems like is its primary demographic, which is like pop culture people. Like, not necessarily people who are specifically comics readers. Like, I still think, obviously, a lot of the people that are there are there for comics, but is that, like, it's, you gotta wonder how much. Is it 50%? Is it 30%? And then, of those people, how many of them only read Big Two? Uh, I think think this is something we could debate all day. Uh, But, ultimately, I think, I think that uh, any opportunity to get more eyes on small, small comic book creators is a bonus. Whether or not that's going to be, you know, half the people that are there or two percent. Uh, one last question before we end this topic: Do you guys think that these conventions, particularly the big ones, are still serving the comics medium? 
Um, I think that... Mm, I think to an extent, it is. But more so, I feel like the direction has turned towards things that are more easily accessible and stuff that has a larger prevalence in... Um, like Phil likes to use the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so like stuff that's a lot more in your face, like the movies. Um, like I think when we were at Wizard World, you know, the big thing that was happening was the Riverdale um, actors were going to be there. Um, whenever you're at your Comic Con, you know, the big thing is always Walking Dead, and sure that has its fans in its comics, but I think it's gotten more prevalence because of the show. Um, and I think people are there more so for the panels, for the, for the panels that talk about TV or movies than they are about the comic versions of, let's say, like the Marvel movies or the DC, the DC movies. Um, so I think that the, the, the show floor and specifically where like they sell comics and Artist Alley is there for the comics community and, um, just in the way that we've seen where they've moved Artist Alley, I feel like it's getting, it's not as big a priority as the main show floor is, which has constantly been expanding. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think, are they still serving the comics community? Yes. Um, but not primarily. And again, I think that goes back to what I'm saying, which is that just like the comics community isn't that big. You know, like you really have to think about like we always talk about how the numbers of, of, of these book sales are not that high. The highest selling comic of the year doesn't sell a million copies. It sells, you know, a hundred thousand copies. And when you think about the fact that these are like regional events that people travel to go to even, there's just there's not that many of us that are like super activated and interested in that aspect of comics. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. especially and, when you think about how many people are just into Marvel or DC. Yeah. And like compared to compared to where it was um, at the very beginning, like cons in general, I forgot who it was. I, I feel like I read a book um, and I, I don't remember. Well, it used to be in the basements of hotels. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. It's just like it used to be like a place where people would would go to because there was such a connection to to the comics um but i but and that was the focus you know it was meeting the creators and and all that but that's become secondary now again at these bigger conventions yeah like, at these I think bigger that's, conventions that's the that's the important qualifier right like because they're different these are pop culture events like your local comic convention is not a pop culture event like, no, it is, course. but not not in, like, the cultural zeitgeist, right? Like, people pay attention to San Diego Comic-Con specifically uh, as if it were, like, somewhat similar to a trade show. Like, you, it, it's a big news press week. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, like, comics don't make those kinds of headlines. No, there's nothing, there's nothing like San Diego Comic-Con on the planet. It really is its own thing. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's still called Comic-Con is a bit of a misnomer. But to say that, like, it doesn't serve the comics community, I think is also unfair because I don't think that there's a better opportunity for creators like Dirk or or Ryan to connect with people than at those bigger conventions because there's a volume of people. And, like, you could argue that smaller conventions, you get an opportunity to have uh, a more personal connection and, and spend more time with people. But I do think that, like... 
spending time at those bigger conventions and and doing what you can to get out in front of people is like a boon for those creators like they need those opportunities so does it serve the comics community yeah but we're sure not its primary focus Mm -hmm. yeah i don't i don't know how how much of a direct correlation there is between massive conventions and comic books certainly at the conventions artists and creators and writers make sales on their books and their ips but uh, uh, in terms of moving the needle i'm not sure how effective it is it certainly is effective in creating hype and anticipation for adaptations and media representations of conflict properties that goes without saying but i'm not sure how effective it is at expanding an audience of readers um uh, in the same way that I'm not sure how effective a movie is at a, creating a, a, you know, a larger audience of readers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in a minuscule scale, you'll find people who watch a movie and say, I want to read the book. That's, that's obviously true in the most, um, in the most local sense, but on a, on a larger sense, I'm not sure what the correlation really looks like. I mean, it's tough because I don't think it's a one-to-one thing. Exactly. Like, yeah, no, I agree. I th- you know, like, I think, to Marco's point, like, you can look at The Walking Dead and, like, The Walking Dead is one of the highest-selling comics every month that it comes out, period. You know? And, like, that's because of the TV show. And, like, yeah, it was a more than averagely popular comic before that, but it didn't become a pop culture phenomenon until it was a multimedia property. And that's kind of just, like, the way it works now. And I think, like, that's the thing that, like, we need to come to terms with, like, as uh, a medium that, like, comics themselves are are not a big industry. You know, they don't move a lot of units, but the properties do. And that's really weird. That's never happened before, you know, like, on this grand of a scale. And I think to just respond to your earlier point, Phil, I... I don't know that there are a lot of things that move the needle for a comic in yeah, general. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that like because of the number of people that are engaged with comics, like one reader at a time is the only way to really do it. And I think like you can say it doesn't have a bottom line effect, but I think you look at the success of someone like Dirk and it does. It's just a matter of how successful you are at marketing your book and pushing your brand. And like Dirk's fucking great at that. And you don't have a Kickstarter come out on a Friday and get funded in fucking 13 hours unless... Three hours. Three three hours. Three hours. Sorry. Um, Yeah. Three hours, 13 minutes. That's even more impressive. Um, He's a grassroots movement. And that's because of conventions. I think that that's a great place to end it. Uh, Conventions. It's a double-edged sword. But ultimately, for the little guy, uh, having an opportunity to show your work to people who otherwise would never see it versus not having that opportunity is always going to be great. And so for that reason, um, conventions serve a purpose in this industry. And without conventions, uh, we wouldn't have some of the opportunities that we have had that we are obviously very thankful for this podcast would not exist without conventions. And so, uh, on our 52nd episode, uh, I think it's great to sort of celebrate conventions for what they are, both good and bad, because ultimately 
as a comics fan, as a fan of geek culture in general, conventions are that that hub where you get to feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. And uh, as that lonely geek uh, that I was, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show have been at some point or another, the fact that this does exist, whether it's comics-focused or not, is awesome. And I'm very thankful and I'm um, thankful for this podcast. That all said, I can do without the Republican National Convention. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, cool. So that's going to do it. Uh, before we jump, I do want to let you guys know where you can find us. We are on iTunes. You can leave us a rating or a comment or both or whatever. Uh, we are also on all other podcast hosting platforms, so check us out. Social media, we are at the Comics Pals all over the place. You can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Let us know your favorite convention experience. And if you've not been to one, let us know why you haven't been. Love to hear that. Um, and then last but not least, we are on YouTube where you can like this video, leave us a comment, share it with your friends. Uh, that's hugely important. And of course, subscribe. We've got all of our interviews out there um, from New York Comic Con. Just a couple more left to release. So check all that stuff out and let us know what you think. And last but not least, if you'd like to get a, if you'd like us to get a guest on the show, let us know who you'd like to get us on here and uh, we'll make it happen because we work for you. Uh, Stan Lee. Nah. <laughs> Uh, so let's do some plugs, Pete. Cool. Thank you guys so much for a year here at the Comics Pals. It's been an absolute blast. I am regularly overwhelmed by your support. Thank you so much. Um, if you guys want to connect with me, you can get me on social media at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, please check out our sister show, The Video Game Pals, if you're a gamer. Check out our week or not weekly, our daily uh, Let's Play show, Pals Play With Me and Thompson uh, over on our YouTube channel. And go check out some of the stuff we've been doing at New York Comic Con. And uh, if you if you wouldn't mind going over to CBR and checking out some of my writing as well. Um, I've got two articles up right now that are uh, still new. Um, one about Marvel cosplays and one about Spider-Man memes from the 60s. So uh, go check those out. Help me pay the bills. Uh, shut up, Pete. Uh, you can always find me over in New Zealand. Uh, that, of course, is on Instagram and Twitter at Toto in Toe. That's. Hold on. Shut up, Kale. I have to plug our other new show, which is the Riverdale Review. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are now, what, two episodes in? We'll be, third one will be coming up on this Wednesday. Um, thanks for the reminder, Marco. Uh, yeah, it's our new Riverdale weekly review show. Kale's supposed to be on it, but he's in New Zealand. So me and Marco have been holding down the fort. Uh, we had our first episode with Andy. Our most recent episode was with uh, Kale's friend Olivia, who's another comics creator. Um, and then we've got a ton of other guests lined up for the future. So come check that out if you're a fan of Riverdale. Awesome. Uh, Phil? Uh, I can take or leave all you fans. I, I know that you love me anyway. So it's, it's just, you know, I'm playing hard to get. What can I say? follow me or not i don't really care on all social media at cyborg bebop and uh you know just tell everyone why i'm your favorite pal uh marco uh you can follow me at woe is marco underscore on twitter and woe is marco on instagram um don't follow phil
He doesn't he doesn't want your your dirty interactions and your and your and your liberal ideologies. Oh Jesus. <laughs> Is it time to argue about global colding? Oh my <laughs> fucking god. Yeah, don't listen, don't go on social media and interrogate me on uh your right wing politics people. Uh as for me, I am at Sean Soapbox on Twitter only. Uh, let's talk about anything. I'm down for some interaction or pirates. some sparring or not pirates. They spar. You know what? Tweet at Sean to talk about how you don't like pirates because he really needs he needs an ally. Agreed. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. The Comics Pals podcast. Take care, guys. Love you. You suck. (laughs) See you next week. We did it. One year, baby. We did it. (laughs) 